National Review Institute is cruising to Alaska. Join NR writers and other thought leaders for a special vacation from June 16 to June 23 aboard Holland America's Nordum. If you're feeling especially adventurous, you can participate in an optional land tour before the cruise from June 12 to June 15. Enjoy fine dining, entertainment, and world-class accommodations as you rub elbows with NR personalities and other special guests during panel discussions, breakout sessions, exclusive 1955 Society events, and more. Make it a family trip! This year we've added youth programming for your children and grandchildren. Destinations include Glacier Bay, Skagway, and Juneau. To register, visit nricruise.com. That's nricruise.com. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the Capitol Record from National Review. I'm your host, David Bonson. We are now into the month of February. I just want to go on record as saying that I think our month of January is one of the strongest months we've ever had. Um, we are entering our fourth year as a podcast, uh, and I really hopefully believe that there's a lot of wonderful episodes in our archives but just the month of January was really fun. If you didn't get a chance to catch all the episodes, um, our very first one kicking off the political year ahead with Dan Clifton, what it means for the economy and markets. Um, our second was Sam Rines really delving into the global macroeconomic expectation of the new year. Uh, then our third with Ed Pinto looking at housing and what to expect out of the national housing market in 2024. And then last week with Jeremy Tedesco looking at the state of corporate engagement, corporate woke America, and what those of us who care about a free and virtuous society ought to be doing. Uh, what's the updated tactics to be thinking about entering 2024 different than maybe where we were a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, as we fight the corrosive elements of ESG and uh, DEI, etc.? My guest today is one who's been with us before. I am a big fan of his. I enjoy reading uh, his work a lot. He's an uh, uh, economic uh, scholar. Uh, his name, of course, Dr. Alexander Salter. You have uh, heard from him before. Um, and I am looking forward to having him on today for a discussion uh, about something pretty unique, about some of the, the explanations in history for the economic prosperity we have that's a little different than you may be expecting. Let me bring Alex on and we'll dive into our conversation. So with that said, allow me to welcome back to the Capitol Record, first time of 2024, but a uh, third time guest here on National Review's Capitol Record, Dr. Alexander Salter. Alex, welcome back to Capitol Record. Thanks, David. It's great to be back. So I believe that uh, the last time we had you on, we had the opportunity to talk about what was then a, a new book you had out. And it was really just a wonderful episode to kind of uh, uh, talk through certain, um, I guess you could say, doctrines that have a, a history in Catholic social thought and, and are uh, prevalent in the way we think about the market economy. And we allowed that conversation to go into a lot of other different topics and whatnot, which is what we like to do here at Capitol Record. Um, you also have a book out that I think will tee up us being able to go in a whole lot of different directions. And I kind of want to start by asking you, if you could just give a summary for readers uh, a little bit about the medieval constitution of liberty. Absolutely. So as you noted, the title of the book is The Medieval Constitution of Liberty. The subtitle is Political Foundations of Liberalism in the West, where here I and my co-author Andy Young are using liberalism in its broad classical sense. And we're wading into the literature that is probably the single most important literature in the social sciences uh, ever since Adam Smith famously asked the question, why are some countries rich and other countries poor? Under understanding the sources of economic and political prosperity really is the first task of economists. If we can't do that, then all of the cool stuff that we're talking about downstream from that doesn't really matter. We got to get the big questions right. And so in this debate, there's been a recent trend for social scientists to emphasize the role of the state, specifically the hierarchical, centralized, legally coherent state that arose uh, after the Treaty of Westphalia and sort of overseeing the political and economic development process. 
And to the extent that you see the state is responsible for the material bounty of modernity, you're likely to be suspicious of older governance arrangements, older governance traditions that prevailed uh, starting in the high Middle Ages. Andy and I want to look at that and say, look, it's undoubtedly and a brute historical fact that we didn't get the modern takeoff in economic growth, right? The hockey stick graph of rising living standards until after we got modern nation states. But that doesn't necessarily mean we can so easily attribute that growth to states. Think about all the times in human history, political power, especially large concentrations of political power have been used for really nasty and mischievous purposes, You're not really doing your job as a social scientist if you point to economic growth and say, oh, the state did it. You need an explanation for why wielding political power that way in ways that are generally beneficial are incentive compatible, why the rulers thought it was a good idea, and are information compatible, how we actually got the knowledge associated with building good institutions. And so we argue in our new book that it was really against the backdrop of what we call the medieval patrimony, the inheritance of decentralized governments, the rule of law, constitutionalism, all these things that were innovated and bequeathed to us uh, from the governance arrangements of the high Middle Ages that explain why in this unusual confluence of historical events, political power was used more or less responsibly. So we don't think that you can ignore the Middle Ages and understanding the source of our prosperity. We think that you must talk about what we inherited from medieval Europe if you're going to understand why everybody is rich today. So is this, in a, in a way, um, a contrary thesis to scholars like Deirdre McCoskey and her explanation of what she calls the great enrichment? Is it a contrary thesis to that of Rodney Stark? when he talks about the unique contribution of Christianity to the victory of reason. Um, it, it, it seems to me that there are uh, a lot of uh, scholarly works and popular works for that matter that have addressed the subject of the hockey stick growth that is mm-hmm. rather evident in, in history and, and uh, visually illustrated for us in charts. Um, your, your theory is compatible, adjacent, or contradictory to some of the more prevalent explanations of, of the prosperity that came out of freedom? That's a great question. The hot topic thesis in the literature right now, as I mentioned before, is the state capacity thesis. Again, strong states were necessary to get the growth process off the ground. The interesting thing about state capacity explanations is that they are ultimately institutional explanations. So we do see ourselves as rooted in the literature that points to institutions, both formal and formal, as the source of long-run growth. Uh, Dear to McCloskey's work, she's very explicitly getting away from that. She doesn't actually think that institutional explanations can really explain the rise of modernity. And so I think that our explanation is at minimum in tension with hers. In fact, we have a chapter in the book devoted to what we think that Deirdre gets right and what we think uh, we're a little more skeptical about, why we think we still need to embrace a primarily institutional explanation. As for Rodney Stark's work, we do talk about the role of Christianity, but again, it's primarily institutional. We look at the Catholic Church as a sort of international governance provider, checking the authority of local elites like kings, princes, bishops, in a way that created room for overlapping governance that worked for the majority of people, even when they didn't have a formal say in the political process. Now, we don't say that much about the content of Christian ideas in this specific book, and we don't wade into the debate over whether the Christian anthropology, the conception of the human person, uh, with uh, which plausibly gave rise to respect for dignity, for natural rights, whether that's playing a part of the story. Personally, I think that is an important part of the process, but we don't get into that specific avenue in this book. We're very much hearkening back to a somewhat older tradition that looks at medieval Europe and we see decentralized governance, we see fragmented governance, we see a lot of overlapping authority, and we see a lot of private governance, right? The political authority was largely privatized during this time, uh, which is one way of understanding why in many circumstances it was wielding, uh, wielded that political authority in ways that actually enhanced wealth. Now, privatization and private governance is an interesting story, but by itself, it's not going to get you where you want to go. 
right? You would probably think that a rancher, if he owns his cow, is going to take a little bit better care of his cow. But at the end of the day, that cow is destined for the slaughterhouse. So there's not exactly a perfect alignment with the uh, with the well-being of the cow and the well-being of the rancher. So insofar as you want to point to feudalism and similar mechanisms that actually are private contractual political authority, you need an additional set up institutional arrangements that ensures that lords and bishops and barons and whatever the political elites were eventually burghers were using their enormous political authority in ways that worked for those who were subject to their decisions, but didn't actually get a seat at the bargaining table. And making that case is probably the single greatest challenge that we that we take on explicitly in the book, writing it was a lot of fun. Um, so I'm curious, in, in the, the setup of the argument, um, you acknowledge the timeline that the point at which uh, GDP growth, for for you know simplicity's sake, a sort of gross output in the world economy, which came with um, and uh, obviously a significant uh, increase in standard of living, uh, production of goods and services that enhanced the quality of life. You would acknowledge those things came after the Enlightenment. And, and even after the 18th century sort of Anglo-American project, um, and yet you, your thesis would be that the Lockean liberal order is overrated in its causative effect, and that preceding the Lockean liberal order, preceding the Enlightenment's uh, contrib contributions in modernity, that there were middle age institutional fruits born that later help explain some of the fruit. Am I, am I stating the thesis correctly? Even if I'm not making the underlying supportive arguments, is that a mm -hmm. fair summary of the position? The second part of that I think is definitely correct. We don't indict what you call the Lockean liberal order in the book. Instead, we're really taking on the explanation that centralized hierarchical states were an essential part of the overall growth and development process. Now, in one sense, that's kind of difficult to do because as you noted, the historical time series is unambiguous. We don't get takeoff growth. We don't get the bounty of modernity until well into the historical process where, uh, where centralized states are basically what exist. Right? They have a massive competitive advantage over more decentralized arrangements. They're very good at raising resources, centralizing projects, fighting wars to sustain their own existence. But again, this gets back to the prior point. If you're going to say that state capacity explains modern economic growth, then you seem to have the problem of explaining many countries with obviously high state capacity that were wretchedly poor. The Soviet Union had tons of state capacity. They could do things. The government was able to accomplish projects. And yet at the same time, the Soviet Union was poor. We can think of many other authoritarian countries that had large state capacity. Why weren't those countries rich? We do definitely see a series of inherited governance traditions constraining the use of political power, starting in what we might call the liberal era in a way that was pro-growth and pro-common man. And it's that set of constraints, the inheritance against that backdrop did the modern state building project take place? And we think that without those constraints that ultimately directed political power into generally beneficial avenues, we would not have observed the confluence of state building with the confluence of economic growth. There's an essential part of the story that's being overlooked in the contemporary developmental literature. I, I wonder, I worry a little bit that some of our listeners may be a little confused about who you're arguing against be, because that argument that has become more contemporarily popular is an explicitly left-wing explanation. I, are, are you suggesting that the McCloskeys of the economic right are guilty of the same argument? In other words, I've listened to Deirdre make the case for the great uh, enrichment as a byproduct of property rights and, and classical liberalism and and um, the uh, freedom and innovation that came uh, post-enlightenment uh, for, what has she been saying this now, 25 years, 20 years? Mm -hmm. um, I've never heard her attach it to statecraft <laughs> or, or, or strong nation states. And obviously, as a very libertarian-minded economist, I think she and and many in that ilk. Now, I don't believe that they 
offer a wonderful account for human anthropology. Um, and I, and I think that there's a significant difference between their economic worldview and mine when it comes to, uh, the foundation for economic freedom and prosperity and the ends of human flourishing. And I think you and I are much more aligned on a lot of those issues than some of the, for lack of a better word, secular free marketeers in, in the modern, uh, market movement. But it seems like there's a, that there's a particular target of your book that I'm not sure who it is. That's a great question. And what's really interesting about this argument that we're writing against is that it doesn't neatly break down into ideological or political categories. Okay. You're definitely right that we're writing against the statecraft paradigm as the ultimate source for economic growth. You can find social scientists who are left of center who embrace this explanation, but you can also find social scientists who are right of center who embrace this explanation. And so really what we see ourselves doing is not offering an ideological argument, but offering a positive argument at the necessary conditions for getting an extension of the division of labor and increasing so social cooperation. Because if you want to say that all the action was done by the state, and you look at how the state transformed from roughly 1400 up through 1750 in terms of getting the foundations of this process, getting the bedrock in place so that the actual growth could follow later, you're engaged in what we call in the book mere institutional morphology. You're talking about how institutions look different, but you're not actually talking about mechanisms. You're not telling me, okay, so power was centralized. Why was that centralized power used in a way that benefited the mass of the population rather than enriched narrow political elites? That's how it usually works, right? For most of human history, life was nasty, brutish, and short because political power was used that way. What changed? What changed? Furthermore, how do we overcome the massive informational difficulties associated with building governance institutions that work for the common good, the public welfare? There's an informational burden here. It's not obvious how you want to construct your new political institutions in a way that they promote market activity. And this is why we explicitly link the title of our book to the famous F.A. Hayek book, The Constitution of Liberty. Because Hayek was all about social epistemics. He was all about knowledge, feedback process, social learning. And if you want to talk about, okay, this legal development, this institutional development was clearly conducive to growth, you need to answer the question, how do we even know? Right? How do we ascertain whether a given institutional change actually resulted in beneficial economic outcomes? What's the feedback process? The people who are on the ground, the bureaucrats, the politicians who are doing this governing, how did they learn? What information did they have at their disposal to figure out, yeah, we're getting it right, or no, we're not getting it right? you got to have something performing that social epistemic work. And so again, we emphasize in the book property rights, constitutionalism, things that not only bound the hands of new political authorities in terms of how they use their power, but also set the informational stage for telling people this is a good innovation at the margin, keep doing it versus this is not such a profitable innovation at the margin. You might want to back away from that. But I guess the two obvious questions, one would be for the your opponent in the book and one would be for your thesis is for advocates, uh, for advocates of the school of thought that uh, large and centralized nation states were the... Um, primary causation in uh, advancement of prosperity, how do they explain nations with large nation states that have failed? Um, how do they explain history prior to the great enrichment being filled with powerful nation states that did not create uh, prosperity? And then how does your explanation explain 300, 350 years going by in between? These are the hard questions, and we absolutely have to meet them head on. Many state capacity theorists will do one of two things when confronted with countries like the Soviet Union. They'll either come up with explanations for why the Soviet Union wasn't a high-capacity state, which ultimately I don't find convincing, or they actually do, to their credit, say, yes, the Soviet Union was a high-capacity state, they lack some other necessary condition to govern well in the source of uh, in the service of generalized economic growth and prosperity, and at least for now, we're going to punt on what those other necessary conditions might be. Ah, but that isn't just a convenient caveat or something that you and I academically may point out. It 
fundamentally alters their argument, does it not? It and does other, fundamentally it alter the argument. It dies the death of one exception. <laughs> A lot of a lot of the papers and the books in this literature will look at states that have gotten rich and they'll say, OK, what can we talk about in terms of the public sectors in these states? Well, government is actually a fairly large share of national income. Uh, tax revenues are actually a fairly large share of national income. We appear to be able to collect tax revenue with minimum deadweight loss, all these things right? that suggest hierarchical, centralized, coherent uh, waste minimizing exercises of political authority. We're not disputing that data. We think that we need an actual explanation for why we observe what we observe consistent with the social scientist project. You can't just tell me about how institutions change. You need to tell me about why institutions changed. You can't just tell me that political power was suddenly wielded responsibility. You need to tell me why it was wielded responsibility. Are we all of a sudden embracing like a public interest view of political power? That seems kind of ad hoc, especially as you pointed out, when we have so many contraexamples, so many obvious counterexamples from history where political power was not wielded in anything like a humane, responsible, generally pro-growth way. So yeah, we think that the state capacity literature that we're ultimately writing against has done a lot to increase our empirical understanding of what went on in the state building process and the modern enrichment process. But without a theoretical understanding of those mechanisms, which is the ultimate concern of the social scientists, they are of limited use. And they're certainly not generalizable. So, so um, we, we share this uh, skepticism, and I would argue an, an ability to empirically prosecute the case against uh, the state, state capacity theory of the case. Um, I'm not bored with it. I, I think it's important. I only have the facial expressions and head nods I, I have that, of course, our listeners can't uh, see or participate with because I think it is one of the most academically dishonest notions that doesn't pass a smell test, a basic prima facie acceptability for almost any serious person that a high capacity of state was the driver. Um, I'm a little less prima facie, um, convinced that the marriage of property rights, of greater self-governance, of mutual cooperation, of some of the, the, the great uh, discoveries out of classical economics, the, the notion that these things were not paramount, and that some synthesis uh, political freedom, economic freedom, uh, religious freedom, um, out of the founding, uh, out of the Anglo-American experiment, that those things were not big uh, drivers of the great enrichment seems like a really high burden of proof to, to suggest that they were not, not just because of the post-hoc uh, time series, but because of the uh, prima facie acceptability of cause and effect. Um, is your point more that those things that all helped drive 19th century economic growth that went to another gear in 20th century and, and that we live under the fruits of today, your, is your point more that there was some marination of certain things in pre-Reformation society that is being underrated? I, help me unpack outside of the state capacity theory with and I understand it doesn't align with a particular political camp. This isn't a tribal, mm -hmm. but help me understand um, what the 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 thesis is that your book is uniquely making about the contribution of medieval thought to the great enrichment. And I'm just gonna, if you don't mind, for simplicity's sake, stick with stick with that nomenclature. That's great. In fact, we opened the book discussing the great enrichment. We explicitly use Deirdre's terminology because we think it's fantastic and we do want to play in that sandbox even as we ultimately push back on some of her uh, retreat from institutional explanations for what's going on. I think the fundamental issue comes down to whether you see property rights, freedom, uh, liberal democracy as a strong break from the medieval inheritance, something that we needed to get in order to, something that we needed to escape from was the medieval inheritance. We couldn't get these nice things until we explicitly repudiate our medieval past. 
or whether you think that those ideas and institutions are properly conceived as a patrimony, a growth, a development. We're in the growth and development camp. We do not see the governance innovations that occurred in the early Enlightenment era as repudiating medieval developments. We see it as a further on growth and development. And the reason that you need to emphasize this discontinuity versus continuity issue is because it's going to very much emphasize how you interpret social, political, and economic history starting around the beginning of the liberal era. If you're someone inclined to think that we needed to escape from the Middle Ages, right, escape from the Dark Ages, then you're going to look at overly complicated, decentralized medieval governance. You're going to look at a clannish, uh, feud-based society. You're going to see unnecessarily complicated anti-commons arrangements, right? Too many chefs with a hand in the, in the pot. And you're going to want something much more clean, much more rationalized, much more intelligible from a centralized perspective. If, in contrast, you buy the continuity view, you're going to look at things like, well, where did constitutionalism come from? Where did this idea come down from that we have representation? Think about how important an institutional development representation is, right? This idea that we have representative bodies that represent constituencies and only deliberatively can they make decisions that affect all members of a polity. As uh, the political scientist David Stasavage, who's doing great work at New York University, makes this point, representation, representative government is a distinctively European phenomenon. We see democracy elsewhere, elsewhere. We see other forms of popular government elsewhere. But small c, small d, constitutional democracy, according to representation, is something that is uniquely Northwestern European. But where did it come from? Look at the charters of the Middle Ages. Look at the grants of political authorities by kings to trading towns to burghers. Look at overlapping jurisdictions, right? These political elites were operating in an environment where no one authority was strong enough to impose his will on others. And so for there to be major governance innovations, the burghers had to get together with the bishops, had to get together with the barons, had to get together with the king and actually agree on stuff. The way that we like to say it in the book is that Europe lived liberty before anybody thought to write it down. And until we understand that experience, we're going to be overlooking a crucial source of the ideas and the institutions that undergird, even today, conceptions of the rights of the human person, the right to own property, the right to actually take part in your government's decision process. These things that we take for granted were not invented by early classical liberal thinkers in the 17th and 18th centuries. They have roots that stretch back much, much further. And we cannot, cannot forget that. And and yet, at the same time, part of the uh, whole point you're making is that despite some of those thoughts being there and the uh, uh, foundation you believe it helped to to feed, you would acknowledge it wasn't systematized or, or articulated historically in a way that gives us an easy appeal that there is thought that played out uh, but i think your expression was they lived it but they didn't write it down certainly i'm definitely not going to object to the what seems to me obviously true claim that there were major advancements in the classically liberal era just before the growth development process started off i'm obviously a huge fan of the scottish enlightenment i'm not going to argue that the scottish enlightenment didn't matter that it was just riffing on earlier medieval stuff there was something new there there was something important there again it comes down to whether you think of a discrete break with the past or a further development of the western tradition we see it as number two. And I think that getting that right is important because think about how radically differently you're going to interpret the causes of economic growth if you actually take one side of that issue versus another. Just think about the sources it's, of economic growth. It's, it's an emphasis on continuity. Mm -hmm. Yes. I'm not sure Rodney Stark would disagree with you in that, in, to that degree. I don't think that he would. I think that his emphasis on Christianity and how Christianity changed how we understand the things that we may and may not do to each other privately and publicly became embedded in institutions, and we carried that forward. So in some ways, I would actually think that our project is more commensurate with Stark than it is with McCloskey, mm. because Stark's story more easily reconciles itself with the institutional literature Whereas McCloskey sees herself as explicitly getting away from the institutional literature. Yeah. Um, 
I do recognize that you are Roman Catholic and a, um, a, a devout and practicing and scholarly and, and wonderful Catholic brother of mine. Um, and you recognize, of course, that I'm a Protestant. But my question is not really about theological minutiae or differenti differentials uh, between our respective traditions in the Christian faith. It's a historical question that I'm wondering if it's addressed in your book. Do you, as a Catholic scholar, believe that the Protestant Reformation was a significant point in history to the in this subject we're talking about today, in terms of catalytic towards um, economic prosperity that was to come, or would that be a little outside of your purview or even comfort level theologically? We do throw a little love to Rome in the book, but uh, actually, I'm not Catholic. I am Eastern Orthodox, so I, I'm not I a apologize. Protestant. And I, nope, I, I, no I knew I knew that, and I said it wrong. Thank you for correcting me. No problem. Uh, given my work on Catholic social teaching and giving this book, it would be a reasonable inference. And so, we don't say too much about the Protestant Reformation in the book, precisely because one, it comes pretty late compared to the time period that we're interested in. Yeah. And two, considering the implications of that for liberalism is multiple book projects in and of itself. And we already had enough to, uh, we already bit off enough with this project. Yeah. In some ways, I think that maybe that might be interesting for me to take on in the future because, because I'm Orthodox, I don't actually have a dog in the fight, so to speak. I don't necessarily need to come down on either side in terms of who was right about what specific point about ecclesiastical polity. Now, obviously, as, as an Eastern Orthodox Christian, I'm very sympathetic to the idea that uh, ecclesiastical polity is pro properly hierarchical, liturgical, and sacramental. And so that's going to necessarily put me on some sides of these debates. But I think it's a totally valid and fascinating question to consider the role of the Protestant Reformation in European liberalism. That would be an immensely fruitful research project. Many people have already contributed to it, but I think that it's something that more economists should do too. Well, I think it would be a wonderful study. I do think more should, and I agree that there, there is a, a sort of ability for presumption of objectivity if someone without a dog in the fight. I will say as a, a, a Protestant and a, specifically a very uh, Calvinistic, Kuyperian-minded um, worldview thinker, uh, I, I have never struggled with um, the recognition of Aristotle, Augustine, Aquinas's contributions uh, to a sort of foundation that ended up becoming, uh, in modernity, classical economics. And some of the great contributions came from people of a different tradition within the Christian faith than my own. Um, I, I, I'm not a Thomist, but I've learned a lot from Aquinas. And, and, and so just in that general realm of whether or not the Protestant Reformation had historical impact, I think a lot of people could objectively do it. Where I think your, your study here would be fascinating. Um, I just want you to know, to, as, on behalf of the Protestant you're speaking to, when you say hierarchical, liturgical, and sacramental, um, I promise you I'm with you on two of the three. Two out of the three ain't bad. And I've read yeah. lots of Kuiper myself. I consider myself influenced by Kuiper. I was somewhat recently, well, about a year ago now, at a conference where we spent an entire weekend discussing Kuiper's writings on politics and economics. And there are some interesting points of contact between Kuiperian thought and Catholic social teaching, for example. I don't think it's correct to look at Kuiper's doctrine of sphere sovereignty and look at that and say, oh, that's just the Protestant version or the Calvinist version of uh, subsidiarity. No, it's much more subtle than that. But there are points of contact. The way that Kuiper thought about social problems, the way that he was reflecting on the challenges to society, to Christian society in particular, of increasing industrialization and economic growth. It showed a great mind and a great political operative. Uh, it's remarkable how too often those two traits do not coincide anymore. Yeah. Struggling with struggling with how to reconcile things that are not easily reconcilable. It's important. Yeah. Well, I, I certainly agree. And I think um, that there's so much wonderful study that can be really edifying. It's not just an intellectual armchair work but has a lot of real practical import and and much like this this book that you're describing here today so i think that the setup you've had is is uh quite fascinating and i think that it's really important 
that um, whether the angle is, you know, as you point out, Rodney Stark's subjective in some of his writing on the Middle Ages is different than what your objective was as an author. But I think Christians have a a better understanding of where we came from and what some of the uh, predecessors were in in history is very important. And the Middle Ages, the medieval times, pre-Reformation, post-Reformation, pre-Enlightenment, post-Enlightenment, uh, they're all no exceptions. There's a lot to learn and understand better. And there will be points of disagreement, even among people who are really quite like-minded. But yet, nevertheless, I think it's a really important study. So I'm grateful for, for you encouraging uh, that. I'd like to direct more people to it. We'll put those links in the show notes and invite people to to go deeper into this area of study. When you when you think now about 2024, where we are, uh, 2024, I guess, will end up soon just being referred to as a, an election year. Of course, it's an Olympics year as well. But I, apart from the presidential political election, uh, of course, that is thought of for you and I as American citizens about our own presidential race. But for, uh, my, my guest a few weeks ago, Dan Clifton, pointed out 40% of world GDP is electing a new head of state this year as well. So there's a, a, a quite significant globally political year ahead. But if we just sort of ignore the politics of things, we right now still have a Fed at um, a high level on the uh, Fed funds rate, even though they've paused now for three consecutive meetings and will surely be pausing again here in the next meeting before uh, uh, this episode airs. Um, They're largely uh, expected to begin some degree of reducing the Fed funds rate this year. There's a lot of talk about where things stand in the price level, inflationary indicators, uh, and there's a lot of question about GDP. Uh, Will the economy continue to grow um, without uh, a seeming uh, hangover? from the Fed tightening of the last uh, almost two years now. Uh, in other words, what I believe will give the, the mainstream press the, a pretty good uh, permission structure to use that term soft landing. If indeed unemployment never gets above 4%, the Fed funds rate retreats 100, 200, eventually 300 basis points, and you don't see a lot of breakage in the financial system. Uh, do you think that that's the path we're on? Do you anticipate that uh, the Fed is going to kind of pull this off? Uh, predictions are hard, especially about the future. There are Indeed. scholars who I respect who say that a recession is pretty much baked in at this point, given the unprecedented magnitude of Fed tightening over the past approximately 18 months. I wouldn't necessarily... I'll just come out and say it. I don't think that we're necessarily going to have a recession. I don't think that it's baked in. I don't think that it's inevitable. At the same time- Monetary lags are getting pretty long. Long and variable lags, they seem to be a thing once again. At the same time, I do recognize that by every standard I know how to evaluate it by, monetary policy does look pretty tight. The- Policy interest rate justified by economic fundamentals after adjusting for inflation looks like it should be in the neighborhood of one and a half percent. In fact, that policy rate after adjusting for inflation is one and a half to two percent. So, you know, between 50 percent and 100 percentage points higher. The money supply is contracting at a rate of about four percent per year. Even when you look at the broader monetary aggregates, the weight components of the money supply by liquidity, which is a more accurate measurement, you still see decline. It's very unusual for the money supply to decline at all. Grow more slowly is one thing, but to outright decline, that's that's pretty strange. So I can understand why people are concerned about the demand side. Monetary policy does look tight. You could argue that it's appropriate now for the Federal Reserve to consider to start easing policy And they've got a little bit of a difficult balancing act here. The way that I normally get around these questions while getting back to my favorite talking point is by saying, uh, I don't really want to be in the business of technocratically tinkering with monetary policy on a period by period basis precisely because it's so hard. This is exactly why we should be talking more about monetary policy rules, strict rules-based monetary policy, so we can actually get around from the uh, the necessity 
of taking these difficult quarter by quarter decisions. I would much more like to see the monetary activities of the Fed put on autopilot, pick a nominal anchor, pick your favorite variable, inflation, the price level, nominal GDP, whatever, figure it out, calibrate the rule, and then make sure that the market understands that it's credible. And I think that that would go a long way to alleviating the uncertainty associated with persistent aggregate demand instability. But as a uh, advocate, and forgive me if we discussed this at one of our last uh, rendezvous, we may we may have, uh, and I've certainly discussed it with some other guests over the years. I think most people that I resonate with in in terms of philosophy of monetary economics um, do agree with, and certainly my own view is fully compatible with what you just said, and and my aspiration for a rules based approach, a more humble and less interventionist. Uh, application of monetary policy. But of course, there's a lot of disagreement on what the rules base ought to be. Do you have a preference or a dog in that fight? I like nominal income targeting. I like NGDP targeting. I don't have anything particularly unique and insightful to say. If you've read David Beckworth, if you read Scott Sumner, you understand the arguments for just keeping total dollar valued spending on an even keel at the same time, I recognize that an imperfect rule would be better than no rule at all. So perhaps something like an inflation target that specifies a specific price level that keeps going up at however many percent per year would be better than what we have right now. I certainly don't like the Fed's adoption of what they call flexible average inflation, inflation targeting uh, in summer 2020. I think that that's been a recipe for lots of mischief and in terms of a more limited response, I think that perhaps getting back to a, like you said, a more humble understanding of the long-term goals of monetary policy, something more reflected like in their 2012 statement where they actually adopted an inflation target for the first time, that that might be better at the margin than what we've got right now. Do you, do you consider nominal income targeting and nominal GDP targeting synonymous? There are, of course, measurement problems. Which aggregate are you going to use? But for the purposes of conversation and analyzing how these things work in terms of money supply and money demand, yeah, I'm comfortable as treating them as synonyms. Um, are you and I two of the only uh, Austrian sympathizers you know of that are uh, open to Sumner's, uh, uh, the nominal GDP targeting work here? Or do you think there's a growing school of Austrians uh, or Austrian adjacents that are, are, are comfortable with that rules-based methodology? I think there are quite a few of us, actually. If you go and look at the scholars affiliated with the Sound Money Project, which is run through the American Institute for Economic Research, my friend and colleague, Will Luther, who's a professor at Florida Atlantic University, he also did his degree with me at George Mason. He also studied under uh, Larry White, the great Larry White, still arguably the world's leading scholar of radically alternative monetary institutions. Uh, scholars affiliated with that outfit, such as Brian Kutzinger, Thomas Hogan, Josh Hendrickson, and of course myself, I'm honored to be in that group too. We look at things broadly in the same way. We are very influenced by Austrian macroeconomics. And at the same time, we do find a lot of points of contact with more mainstream theory. We're not really looking to ideologically impose one specific school of thought on the time series, we're basically asking the question, how can we, given the institutions that we have, best secure monetary stability and macroeconomic stability? And a lot of us find a lot of virtue in nominal GDP targeting. Now, at the same time, we are also willing to consider more radical alternatives, perhaps even alternatives to the Federal Reserve itself. But living in the realm of political reality, it's not going anywhere. So it seems worthwhile to think about how we can make the system worth work as well as it possibly can. And, and I think that if people uh, with a more popular understanding of economics, uh, a, a layman's level of intuition, which is really all that matters, right? I mean, where I get upset um, about excesses in monetary intervention is not stuff that gets into a textbook. It's real life. It's it's practical. It uh, impacts uh, people. It distorts price discovery. It it in my mind impedes economic growth. I know we're used to thinking that the Fed staying loose for longer accelerates economic growth. I think quite the opposite. It certainly uh, impedes productivity. 
um, and and alters incentive structures and other things as free marketeers are supposed to care about. But I think what you said is one of the most important things we can ever say on this podcast. Um, it is candidly, Alex, why I don't spend a lot of time talking about the gold standard on this podcast. Um, it's never going to happen. And I don't want to spend a lot of time thinking about things that are never going to happen. Now, there are people who will say it's only not going to happen because people like you say it's never going to happen. That's not true. There's a lot of really good reasons. But I think nominal GDP targeting, if people could understand the difference between no rules-based approach and a really reasonably sensible rules-based approach that's then going to have some real granular dis discussions about, about metrics and particulars. If people could understand the difference it would make in real life, it, it, it would become an overwhelmingly popular thing. Unfortunately, just the basic vocabulary of what we've used in the last 10 minutes, let alone some of the concepts that play out, uh, it just strikes me as being almost impossible to gain any political traction. And of course, the uh, the centers of influence and gatekeepers academically um, are are largely in such a different school of thought. But I think you're being very generous when you refer to their averaging inflation target as an example of something uh, that the Fed's doing that is uh, counterproductive. Because I don't, I believe the only thing worse than them saying it is the fact that they never have any intention of doing it to begin with. All that they're really doing is just continuing uh, six-week or eight-week intervals of arbitrary discretion and hope, hope that they can get things right, um, that then they uh, apply a post-facto rationale to. And the notion of allowing for a longer period of time to average inflation target, um, it, it hasn't come into any bear whatsoever, right? They were at sub 2% forever. I've never heard them say, let's get to, let, when inflation, when CPI was running at 7, 8, 9%, I never heard them say, well, that's okay because we're trying to run a higher average. They're just simply go, running federal, monetary policy on the seat of their pants, by the seat of their pants, and then applying various white papers uh, retro as post facto rationale later. I think it's surreal that we let him get away with this. Historically, the Fed has been pretty reluctant to embrace any particular specific rule or target. And I think the reason for that, you just did a really good job of pointing out. Because if the Fed tells us specifically what it's trying to achieve, now we have a clear and unambiguous standard by which to judge them. As long as they say, oh, it's complicated, oh, as long as there's a myriad of goals that are sometimes cooperating, sometimes conflicting, then after the fact, you can always say, well, we didn't make a mistake. We just thought that in this specific circumstance, uh, unemployment mattered more than inflation. So we erred on the side of, of the unemployment side of our mandate. Uh, Robert Hetzel, who worked at the Fed for 40 plus years, has a wonderful new book, A New History of the Federal Reserve, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2023, where he talks about, among other things, this political economy point. It's very difficult to get people to adopt standards and frameworks that allow for outsiders to evaluate their behavior, because in this case, the Fed decision makers don't want to have to be held to anything. They want flexibility. They want maximum discretion. And if there's ever going to be anything like a real rule, a rule that binds, a rule that bites, frankly, it's going to have to be something that Congress steps in and does. The Fed cannot adopt it voluntarily if for no other reason than that which is adopted voluntarily can be ignored voluntarily whenever something comes out of left field. Well, I think that uh, these are very astute observations, my friend, and I think that um, it is it is wonderful to see your ongoing works of scholarship. Uh, I always appreciate these conversations uh, since the moment that we first met, which um, I, I don't know if you remember or not, we sat together on a panel at um, Acton. Uh, it was not right in the midst of the pandemic, meaning 2020, but it was still kind of in a moment where a lot of less free states were still kind of acting bonkers throughout things. And, and nevertheless, uh, the, the work that we did together in a panel on, um, on poverty 
uh, is when we first met, and, and I've enjoyed reading you since then and, and learning from you. And I know our readers have too, and I just want to really uh, thank you publicly for your great work and look forward to uh, years more of benefiting from your scholarship, my friend. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure. Please keep on doing what you do. This is a wonderful resource. Thanks so much. Well, um, well I don't say. I just uh, loved it. I, I really am fond of Alex and his work. I thought we uh, hopefully kept the conversation really understandable, really coherent. I think he's a clear and cogent thinker. Um, you know, there's a few things I gotta. I have to dive into his work to to grow a little bit more comfortable with where I think he's coming from on some of the uh, uh, arguments he's making about medieval history's role, uh, explanatory role in the great enrichment. I, I certainly am extremely comfortable with his thorough decimation of the notion that higher nation state capacity could possibly be thought of as the sin qua non of economic growth. I think uh, history is clear on it, and I think he does a great job dismantling those arguments. But there is some more uh, meat on the bone of what he's put out that I want to be able to unpack a little. Uh, but as always, it kind of goes into some other conversations, and I hope you found them interesting and engaging as I did. And I'm really looking forward to some more fun episodes uh, throughout the month of February. I have a brand new book coming out next week called Full-Time Work and the Meaning of Life. Uh, it's available right now to order on Amazon. There's audio and Kindle and, of course, the hardback. It's at Barnes & Noble. It's sold at all bookstores. Uh, the actual street date where it shows up on your doorstep is this coming Tuesday, February 6th. And so I certainly would appreciate you checking that out. I'm going to dedicate next week's uh, Capital Record to a discussion about the economics of work uh, the concerns I have right now with our labor participation force and how this ties into my book um, about the sort of existential state of society and the role that work plays in God's created order at generating the very concept of human flourishing. So I look forward to being with you next week in the Capitol Record, and I hope you'll check out my book full-time. And in the meantime, thank you so much for listening to National Review's Capitol Record. Thank you.